Matthew 3, 1 to 12 is our text today. The relevance of repentance. And the man named John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, we um, are grateful for people in the Bible like John the Baptist and for their caustic message, one that calls us to wake up and acknowledge the needs within our hearts and our lives. And we thank you for important biblical words like repent and kingdom. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that um, John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for you. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, now to prepare the way for your word and that you would have it to fall on hearts that are ready to receive it. As we sang at the very beginning, we pray you'd open our eyes, Lord. We want to see you, Jesus. And in order to see you clearly, we have to start by seeing ourselves. And so help us in the mirror of your word to see our own hearts and the extent to which they are filled or absent of fruit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Typically, I prefer to be called normal, not abnormal. (laughs) And I, I prefer to be told that something is normal rather than it's abnormal. For instance, when I go to the doctor and I get a blood draw and I'm waiting for the phone call back, I'm longing for the words normal. When I go to the mechanic and my car has seems to be something wrong with it, um, I prefer for the mechanic to say, but everything's normal. And I especially prefer the word normal when I go to the dentist. There's just something, and I know we have dentists in our church, but but there's just something about sitting in that chair with sharp instruments in my mouth and as the dentist is looking over my teeth i'm just i'm just longing for this sound everything's great what i'm listening for and hoping i won't hear is uh oh <laughs> but i think they teach you that in dentist school don't say that right away i'd rather be normal than abnormal and yet here's a question that i've been thinking about all week and it's this when is normal dangerous When is normal dangerous? It occurred to me that the Bible over and over talks about the way in which normal religion can be dangerous. You think about all the groups of people that are mentioned in the scriptures who call themselves religious. The the group of people who gathered and called themselves the people of God people who gathered together for worship, I don't know the exact statistic, but most of the time, those large groups of people got religion dead wrong. Normal religion was way off. And what happens is when normal religion gets to be way off, God sends particular people with a strong message in order to call the people of God to wake up to be able to realize that their normal is actually abnormal. To be able to say to them, the way that you're approaching religion is off kilter. And God sends people in order to help us to see how abnormal our normal really is. One of those individuals in the Bible is John the Baptist. And if I could choose one word to describe John the Baptist, it would be this word. It would be the word radical. 
Because John the Baptist was a radical guy. He was one who pushed the norms of, of his society. He dressed in a way that was different. He acted in a way that was different. And John the Baptist certainly said some things that were not normal. So to be radical implies that you're not like everybody else. And John the Baptist's message essentially was this warning... Normal religion is not safe. That's what he said. Normal religion is not safe. And he says this in the context of trying to get the people of Israel ready for the coming of the Messiah. He was preparing the way of the Lord. And his message to them was, your normal way of dealing with God is not safe. It's dangerous. So the question we're going to look at this morning is this. To what extent is this radical messenger, John, called John the Baptist, relevant for where we live. That's the title, The Relevance of Repentance. John's a fascinating guy. Let's examine a little bit of what he's all about and where he got his beginning. John the Baptist was the son of a priest named Zechariah. His mother's name was Elizabeth, and she was a relative of Mary. Therefore, Jesus and John were relatives. Luke 1 tells us that while Zechariah was serving in the temple, an angel appeared to him and told him that he was going to have a son. And that son would have a very unique ministry. Turn over to Luke chapter 1 and verse 15. I want to show you this because it sets the framework of John's entire life. Luke chapter 1 verse 15, the angel directly speaks to Zechariah as to what John's ministry would be in this world. So Zechariah is in the temple, he's serving as a priest, his time to serve had come, and while he's ministering to the Lord inside the temple, this angel appears and tells him he's going to have a son. And verse 15, we pick up the story, it says this, For he will be great before the Lord. Zechariah, your son John, will be great before the Lord. Skip ahead to verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And then verse 17 is the key. He will go before him, that's speaking about the Messiah, he will go before him in the spirit and power of, what's the next word? Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, that's a reference back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, the last verse of the Old Testament, talking about the coming days of the Messiah, that one day someone like Elijah was going to come. And then he says this, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John the Baptist's role in biblical history is to be this Elijah-like figure who will prepare God's people in order to meet the Lord. His role was Elijah-like. So who was Elijah? Elijah was known as one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. And Elijah was a radical guy. He um, served during the time of Israel when uh, kings were really bad and queens were even worse. (laughs) You you know the names Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, they're so bad that nobody's ever named their son Ahab, right? I mean, if someone goes, Ahab, come here, that would be bad news. Or worse, Jezebel. Nobody names their daughter Jezebel. That's the name you give your cat. That's what you name it, right? (laughs) I'm going to get cat emails on Monday. I know it. I had a cat. It's dead. All right? So, Jezebel. 
Ahab, bad people. And, and, and Elijah serves during this season when he's confronting Israel about the way in which not only their leaders are opposing God, but the people themselves because they're trying to add worship of Baal along with the worship of God. They, they think somehow that they can just simply have God and their Baals. And so at that time on, on Mount Carmel, Elijah says to the people of Israel, how long will you limp between two opinions? I mean, you kind of go over here, and then you go over here, and then you go over here. And he says, stop going back and forth, back and forth. In, in other words, have some backbone. Whose God do you, whose God do you really serve? Or which God do you really love? If Baal is God, then serve Him. If Jehovah God is God, then serve Him. But stop limping between two opinions. Stop riding the fence. That was Elijah's message. Well, the Bible tells us that Elijah not only had a radical message, he had a radical appearance. Elijah was the one who dressed in a garment of hair and a leather belt, according to 2 Kings 1. And he was the one also that lived in a wilderness, 1 Kings 17 and 19. And so Elijah's message and his manner, both his message and his manner, were meant to challenge the spiritual status quo of God's people. So when you, you read that John the Baptist wears camel skin and a belt, he was not the first person to have that fashion statement. That was Elijah-like garb. And Elijah was the one who, according to the book of Malachi, was going to come just before the coming day of the Lord. Listen to the passage that I mentioned before, Malachi 4 and verse 5. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. This is the last verse in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a, de with a decree of utter destruction. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that John the Baptist was the one who fulfilled this role. So John the Baptist modeled his life after Elijah. Verse 4 of chapter 3, Matthew tells us that John wore the same kind of clothing that Elijah wore. It says, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So when John comes wearing this garment of, of camel's hair and this belt, people look at him and they know, oh, he's dressed like Elijah. Further, he lives in this wilderness of Judea. It's, it's a dry, no-man kind of land, almost like a desert to the west of the Dead Sea. And so here we have this, this strange man dressed in a strange way, eating strange food, living in a strange place. And Matthew tells us in chapter 3 that this was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 40. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. A reference to the way in which a lead team, when a king was coming, would, would go and prepare the road. They, they take out the rocks, they try and straighten it, so when the king came through, he could travel with ease. Think of it like an advanced team for a president. They come to make sure that everything is prepared, and this was John's role. It was to come and prepare the way for the Lord. And Matthew wants his readers to know that John the Baptist is fulfilling that kind of role in a spirit like Elijah. His role is to prepare the people. Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea. So Jerusalem is the city. Judea is the region. 
And then all the region, it says, about the Jordan were going out to him. So there's this sense that there's this all sorts of people who are coming out to hear and to see John the Baptist and what is he, and to see what he's doing. And it tells us what he's doing in verse 6. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John's ministry involved essentially three things. A message, we'll look at that at the end. It also involved the confession of sins, and then it involved water baptism. Now, you're probably familiar with water baptism because you've seen it here in a Sunday service. But in John's day, that kind of water baptism was uncommon. It's different than believer's baptism. We'll talk about that in two weeks, how it's different. But the baptism that John is doing is a very different sort of event. The word to baptize means literally in an active sense to dip or to plunge. That's why we practice immersion here. Because it means to dip or to plunge. The idea is someone's out and then they're in. In a passive sense, it means to be drowned. Now, when we're doing our baptismal classes, we don't tell people that's what the word means, right? (laughs) To be drowned. But that's the sense, is the sense of complete under the water. It's also used of ships. When they sunk, were said to be baptized. So the idea of the word is a bit violent. Leon Morris, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, suggests that violent imagery is intended with the word baptized because it symbolizes, this is very important, death to a former way of life. The idea is my former life was plunged beneath the water and I'm raised and it symbolizes a completely new life. So the idea of this plunging, this baptizing, this immersion is a violent death to the former way of living. But Jews weren't baptized. The only people that were baptized in Old Testament Israel were Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So understand the significance. If you're a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, then you were baptized. In so doing, you were symbolizing that you were taking all of the old stuff of your life as a Gentile and you were casting it away and in a violent sort of sense. You were plunging your old life as a Gentile into the depths of that water. And as you came out, you came out a spiritual Jew. And so baptism in that sense was only used in one of two instances in the Old Testament prior to John. It is used of Gentiles who were converted and became Jews. And it is used of worship utensils that were unclean, that needed to be clean in order to be used for temple worship. But it was never used of Jewish people. And the reason is, is they didn't need to be clean. They were already clean by another symbol called circumcision. So it would be unthinkable for a Jewish person to be baptized. Because that's something that those people did. That's something that Gentiles did. People who aren't part of us did in order to become like us. So when John the Baptist begins to baptize, this is a big deal. That's why he's called John the Baptist. Why he gets the little tagline, the baptizer. Because what he was doing was new and radical. Jews thought they were born clean. They were in the right family. And John is now baptizing Jewish people in the Jordan River. No wonder people were coming out to see what was going on. Here's this weird guy with this weird message and weird clothes like Elijah. He's baptizing Jewish people in the Jordan River. It's going to attract attention. 
So what's happening? Well, his baptism was directed specifically towards the Jewish population, and it is tied to the confession of sin. It's an acknowledgement by Jewish people that even though they've been born a Jew, even though they've been circumcised and are a part of the nation of Israel, when it comes to meeting with God, they're not okay. And so what John is doing is making a powerful statement that this Jewish person enters the rivers of the Jordan, which was, by the way, the barrier between the wilderness and the promised land. The symbolism is just pregnant there. And he'd take a Jewish person, put them in the water, they would confess their sins, and then John would baptize them. They wouldn't baptize themselves. No, this was something that had to be done to them. And they would then participate in a Gentile proselyte activity in order to symbolize that they needed to be renewed. And this wasn't just a, well, I think I'll get baptized this week and then maybe next week as well. This was a radical change of mind, heart, and commitment. This baptism that John is doing is a humbling act of repentance and renewal. It was a a unbelievable statement by the part of Jewish people that they needed to be spiritually prepared. A radical statement of the fact that they were not ready to meet God. And so John says, Prepare yourselves. This idea of preparing oneself to meet with with God has other parallels. In Exodus 19, when the Israelites gather at the base of Mount Sinai, where God gave the Ten Commandments, Moses says, I'm going to go up in that mountain, and God's going to give us his word, and therefore I want you to wash yourselves and prepare yourselves. So clean up your garments, get ready, and assemble around the, 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 the Mount Sinai, but don't touch the mountain. Don't touch it. And on top of that mountain is a fiery, smoking, holy God. And on the base of the mountain are people who are cleaned up. And the idea is, get yourselves ready to meet with God. And what John is doing is hearkening back to the days of Old Testament Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, now using a Gentile proselyte symbol and saying to the people of Israel, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you are ready to meet God face to face. And that is why this baptism is a really big deal. And why when the scripture says that all of Jerusalem and Judea were coming out to him confessing their sins and entering into this act of baptism, he was preparing people to meet their God and there was a renewal happening in Israel. The people were preparing themselves. Here was John, this radical messenger, lived a radical life, wore radical clothes and called the people to a radical commitment to be ready to meet God. So that's what he did. Now, what did he say? What was his message? Well, verse 2 gives us a great summary. Here's what it says. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Say that with me, will you? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent may be a familiar word. You may not know exactly what it means. In the original language, it's the combination of two words that mean against and the mind. So against the mind. So essentially, repentance means a change of mind. A change of mind that begins with an understanding of how different your life needs to be in light of believing and agreeing to a certain fact. For instance, in the Bible, repentance is primarily associated with repenting about who Christ is. 
It's the difference between saying, well, he's just a man, just a prophet, just a guy who lived on the earth, to saying, no, he's Lord and Christ. And repenting means you've changed your mind about Christ. Repentance also means you change your mind about yourself. That before, you say, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as other people. I've sinned a little bit, but not as bad as others. And I'm basically okay as long as I do a bunch of good stuff. And the Bible comes along and says, no, you're a terrible, wicked sinner. And everything you do further contaminates your life and makes you guilty of God's judgment. And when you say, oh, yeah, that's right about me, that's called repentance. You change your mind about who you are, and you also change your mind about who Christ is. But biblical repentance goes even further than that. It not only involves a change of mind, but it also captures the emotions and the will. It's an invitation for people to turn from sin to God, from disobedience to obedience, from rebellion to faithfulness. And repentance always involves at least four things. It involves, first, a recognition of a need, of realizing that um, that I have a need, I have a problem. Secondly, it involves a sorrow for sin, it involves an emotional embracing of how I've sinned against God. But that's not it. You see, some people think that repentance is just being sorry or feeling bad. I've met a lot of people in my lifetime who've done really bad things and they feel really bad, but they're not repentant. They feel bad because of the consequences. They feel bad because people got hurt, but yet they keep doing it over and over and over. Why do they do that? Why? Because they're sorry they're not repentant. There's a difference. You see, repentance not only involves a need and also sorrow, but it also involves a decision to turn, a decision to turn from sin to God. And then, and this is the key, the result is an obedient lifestyle that fits with the change of mind. So repentance is this 180 degree turn where I change my mind about myself, about Christ. The result is sorrow for sin, a a decision to turn, and the result is a lifestyle that shows that what I've changed in my mind is the real deal. John's call for repentance here is a call for these Jewish people to radically turn from their old way of living to a new way to so radically change from their normal religious behavior and now embrace a new way in preparations for the coming of the kingdom. So, that's what the word repentance means. But he says repent, and this reason for saying repent is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does he mean kingdom of heaven is at hand? The word kingdom is all over the book of Matthew. 32 times it's used. Kingdom of God is also used. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are used um, interchangeably in the book of Matthew. Now, some of you may, um, from years ago, uh, known a little bit of discussion about some people suggest that there's a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, especially if you had a Schofield Bible uh, growing up. Schofield made a big deal about the difference between kingdom of heaven and, and kingdom of God. And I would tell you, I don't think there is any difference. I think what Matthew is doing is just simply saying the same thing, but saying it in a different way and being careful when he says the name God because Matthew is a Jew. Other writers in the New Testament don't even use kingdom of heaven. They just use kingdom of God. So, so what is kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God referred to? Here's what it refers to. Here's my definition. It refers to a dynamic, life-changing reign of Christ. A dynamic, life-changing reign of Christ that is both present and future. It is both now and not yet. Say that again. 
It's the dynamic, life-changing reign of Christ that is both present and future, now and not yet. So let me be clear. I don't think that we are living in the kingdom right now. At the same time, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said the kingdom of heaven is among you. The kingdom of heaven is in you. So what does he mean? Well, I think that there's coming a day when Christ will rule and reign on the earth. Millennial kingdom. At the same time, the rule and reign of Christ in that kingdom has some harbingers in our present day relationships amongst each other in the church and in the new covenant. So it means that there are certain effects of Christ's victory on the cross and his defeat of Satan and his conquering the grave that now result in a kingdom-like environment that's available to us, but yet it's not fully fulfilled. So you could think of it as though it's been elected, but not inaugurated. That Christ has been declared the victor, but not yet fully seated. You could think of it in this way, that... Um, When I asked Sarah to marry me, we were engaged, but yet the consummation of that event was yet to come. That there's this sense that the ruling, reigning Christ in his lordship is waiting an official moment in history where he will actually literally reign. But even now, there is this sense where the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the rule or the life-changing reign of Christ is operational or One other maybe illustration, you can think of it this way. A new king is in the castle, Christ, but the land is not fully under his rule. Now, what does all of that mean? It means that when John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying that God and his rule and his reign and his the communication of what righteousness is, is really close. He says, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying the way in which God is ruling and his righteousness and his reign and his power and his authority and his glory are are at hand. They're close and they're near. And therefore, he calls people to repent because God is close by. You can think of it this way. When when I was a kid, on a couple occasions, just just a couple, just a couple, my mom said, your dad's going to deal with that, me. I got that, that when he gets home. And I knew that when my dad came home, I was going to get that, right? So I knew whatever that was, it was never good. So I knew that when my dad was coming home, that there was going to be trouble. And so as my dad would pull into the driveway, I can hear my mom's words. When your father gets home, he's going to take care of that. And so my father, although he wasn't home, was in the driveway, the sorrow in my heart and the fear began. Because I could see his car and my father was near. Behold, the discipline of my father is at hand. Okay? So he's not in the house, but he's close enough. I'm starting to feel the pain already. Okay? Let me give you another example. Um, We're... In that process of trying to teach our little daughter how to sit at a table and eat all of her food, and that's not always the easiest thing in the world to do, and there's on many occasions she says, I'm all done, and she's not all done, but she wants to be done and go do something else, something really important like play with dolls or something. And But that cut-up chicken is begging her, and, and righteousness has to reign through cut-up chicken. And so, therefore, she needs to sit and eat her meal, but often she doesn't, she wants to get down. And so on occasion, she will say, I'm all done, Daddy. And she'll get done and walk away. I'll say, no, come back and sit down. And she'll say, I'm all done. And I'm just like, 
who, first of all, how is it possible for a three-year-old to wag her head at me and say, I'm all done. I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> Secondly, I'm your dad. Get back. I'm thinking all of these things. So what I did a couple weeks ago is I just said this. Boys, get me the spoon. And they're like, oh, yeah. So they run over and they like, 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 grab the spoon and they bring it back and this this long wooden spoon, right? And truth be told, I've never used it on her sweet little rear end. And I don't... Don't tell her this, but I don't think I ever will. But the thing is, is that spoon, the minute it comes to the table, obedience, bang, instantaneously. She comes back, sits at the table. She looks at me, looks at the spoon, looks at me. I'm eating my chicken daddy. I'm eating my chicken daddy. And there's this sense where her repentance is happening because the Hulk, behold, the spoon is at hand, right? So the nearness of the object creates an impetus for repentance. That's what John is saying. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is near. Righteousness is close by. God is moving. He's among you. He's close. And therefore, John is asking them, are you ready? And the sense of no. No, I'm not. That's what John wants to press on. It's the sense that I got a number of weeks ago when I clicked on a news link on the Internet and saw the headlines, International Monetary Fund Recommending One World Currency. And I went, whoa. And I just, these these instant emotions. Am I ready today to meet Jesus? Am I ready? Like, right now. If this was it, am I ready? And that, that... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the idea. It is this sense that normal religion needs to be repented of. So then verse 7, John has some Pharisees and Sadducees who come for baptism. And he then says to these Pharisees and Sadducees, he calls them a brood of vipers. This is not very nice to say. What is he saying here? He is attacking their spirituality. We don't know exactly why the scribes, the Pharisees, or the Sadducees are coming. But John, apparently, believes that their motives are not genuine. And he goes right after them. And and notice the things that he says. Verse 7, he calls them a brood of vipers. He accuses them of being the offspring of snakes. (laughs) He's radical. No wonder he lived in a desert, right? Verse 7, he identifies that they're not real converts. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He He's not convinced that their education, their spiritual uh, trappings, and everything that people thought of them made them objects of mercy. No, John looks at them and says, you are under judgment. Who told you to flee judgment? Verse 8, he even calls them out saying that they're not real. Verse 8 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's challenging them, saying that your repentance isn't real. Show me, John says, the fruit of your repentance. And then he even challenges their ancestry in verse 9. He assumes that the minute he challenges them, they're going to appeal back to Abraham, because Abraham was the ultimate trump card for a Jewish person. Well, we have Abraham as our father. And they said that over and over, even to Jesus. And John anticipates them saying that in verse 9. Look what he says. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What's he saying? You think God needs you? 
He can raise up kids from these stones. So don't say to me, Abraham is our father. And then verse 10, he suggests that judgment is imminent. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Hear that verse. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He's suggesting that judgment is ready. And then he warns them finally of fierce consequences. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The picture here is incredibly clear of total destruction. These are heavy and urgent words. And John is saying them to the most spiritually minded people of his day. The most spiritually minded people who look at their spirituality and their spirituality is rooted in their birth and it's fed by their pride. And John says, your religion is not only worthless, it's under judgment. This is really important. This is really important. John is not just saying that judgment is coming. He's not just saying there's bad things going to come in the future. He's not just saying there's bad things that are going to happen to you. The judgment is coming. He's saying that the judgment has already begun. The axe, he says, is laid against the root of the tree. So the judgment began not with the consequences, but with a misunderstanding of what real religion was. And the product of it was fruitless religion. The implications for this, friends, are enormous. It means that a lack of fruit, hear hear me, a lack of fruit is the first sign of judgment. The judgment begins by the cutting off of the source of nourishment. Already, he says, the axe is laid at the roots. When the fruit dries up, the tree is cut down, and then it is destroyed. But the judgment has already begun, and the fruitlessness is the sign. I know something of apple trees because we had a number of them on our property when we lived in Michigan. And I could just about predict when a tree was going to die because you could see through the fall that it wasn't bearing any significant apples. And invariably, if the apples were not there, then the next spring, when the winter came around, the tree was completely dead. It was amazing to think that the lack of fruit actually was an indicator of what was already happening inside. The tree had already begun to die, and the lack of fruitfulness was just an outward symbol of what had already taken place inside that tree. And what John is doing here, friends, is warning us about the kind of normal religion that when pressed on Bear fruits fitting with repentance say, well, I was born in this home. I walked the aisle when I was seven. I was baptized when I was nine. It's pressing on the kind of normal religion that bases its security on the information that you know, the things that you have seen, the places that you've been, the things that you've been a part of. And yet, John would say, without fruit... You're already under judgment. 
it, it's, it's a stern reminder that bearing fruit for repentance is an indicator of what's going on inside of one's heart. And it is a warning that normal, fruitless religion is no religion at all. And what John is doing is calling for a break from institutional, historical, dry, and fruitless religion. And he's calling the most religious people of his day a brood of vipers because in the end, a life devoid of spiritual fruit is the ancestry of a snake, not the seed of Abraham. But you know what? John isn't even done. He's going to bump it up one more notch. Look at what he does next. He says, lest you think he's the Messiah, one is coming who's mightier than me. Verse 11, this Messiah, who we know as Jesus, will be both Savior and Judge. He will not only proclaim a message of repentance, he'll not only call people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but he will also be the one who will enact repentance, empower it, and judge it if it doesn't happen. John also says in verse 11 that he who is coming after me not only is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And John describes himself as not only worthy to carry the sandals of this coming king, he wants his people to know, look, you think what I'm telling you is stunning? You haven't seen anything yet. And then he goes on in verse 11 to describe, I will, I baptize you with water for repentance but He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire, that the Messiah's baptism will be supernatural and purifying. It has to be supernatural, because repentance doesn't work unless the Spirit of God empowers it. So it's not a matter of you trying to work up fruit. The issue is not, can I become fruitful? The question is whether or not you are filled with the Spirit of Christ. It is the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, I will baptize you with this. John says, he will baptize you with this spirit and with fire, this this proving supernatural power. And then verse 12. What a text. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor. The idea is this. I mean, if the axe laid at the root of the tree wasn't a, a vivid enough imagery, John then appeals to harvesting of wheat where you take all the stalks of wheat, put them on the ground, and then allow the oxen to trample them. And then the farmer would take a winnowing hook, like a pitchfork, and he'd scoop up the, the, the wheat and he'd throw it up into the air because the oxen would crush and separate it from the husk and then the good wheat would fall to the ground. But as he threw the wheat in the air, the wind would take the chaff and it would blow it away. So the idea is the Messiah has a winnowing fork in his hand. The image is stunning and it's, it's frankly, it's frightening that the Messiah who can baptize with the Spirit and with fire has a winnowing fork in his hand and he's plunging his winnowing fork into the pile of wheat and throwing the wheat up into the air so that the good will remain and the bad will be blown away. And what John is saying is this, the Messiah will separate those of you who are real from those of you who are fake. 
He will take his winnowing fork and he knows as he throws it up in the air, the evidence of your life will clearly demonstrate whether or not you are real or whether or not you are just playing a game. Whether or not you can say all the right words, you got all the right pedigree, you've done all the right things, you got all the right dates in the front of your Bible. But the reality is you and Jesus know that if he threw you up, you would blow away because there is not sufficient fruit because the Spirit of God is not in you. And John says, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he concludes by talking about that Jesus will gather the good from the bad. Verse 12, he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Clearly an image of impending judgment. The the implication of this verse is so obvious. You see what John is calling for. He's calling for spiritually minded religious people to wake up. To to realize that the kingdom of God is at hand. That judgment has already begun. And the sign of the judgment is the decreasing fruitfulness of one's heart. Or, judgment is come because you realize the reality of who Christ is and the fact that you've never repented in the first place of changing your mind about who Jesus is and who you are. And what John would say is this, my message is nothing compared to the message of the one who is to come. So there's either, there's there's one of two kinds of people here this morning. There are people whose hearts have been filled by the Spirit of God who have evidenced fruit in their life in varying degrees, who know the Lord Jesus as their Savior and understand that being fruitful is not you, it is the Spirit of God. It means that when you give someone a kind word or you do anything that's loving or filled with joy or peace or anything that's long-suffering, for goodness sake, you are not long-suffering. Nobody is. If that happens at all, it is only because of the Spirit of God within you and you know that it's not you. And then there are other people who you try and try and try and try. You try all sorts of things and everything you can. But the reality is your religion is still a self-made religion. You're trying to do it. And that is the product of a life where you are simply trying to be your own Savior. And John would say, prepare the way of the Lord means to repent. Change your mind about who Christ is. Change your mind about who you are. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. We know who Jesus is. We know what he's all about. Even the demons know who Christ is, and they tremble. So the question is, what's the difference between you and the demon? The difference has to be that I'm indwelt with the Spirit of God, and my life gives evidence of fruit. So what is the relevance of this repentance? The relevance is this. Jesus was the full embodiment of the presence of God in the world. He defined for us the very heart of God. And he calls for human beings like you and me to recognize our need to turn back from the brink of our self-destruction and say to him, I need you. I'm coming back. 
It's the call for believers who know all of this stuff, but whose hearts have begun to faint and grow weary, and fruitfulness has begun to, to give evidence in your life for you to say, you know what, enough of normal, fruitless religion. I need to turn. The call to repent is to change one's mind. It's a call to realize that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and therefore, here's my call, listen, that you would turn radically to God through Christ today. For some of you, that may mean saying, Lord, I need to prepare my heart in fresh and new ways, and 2009 has been in the tank in terms of fruit. For others of you, it may mean that just as a part of your response to the Lord, that there needs to be a decision for the first time to receive Christ. We're going to serve communion. And if you know the Lord, we'd love to have you celebrate the Lord's table with us. Let me tell you what we're going to do differently, though, today. The normal way that we do it is good. We'll have men come. They're going to serve you right where you are in your seats. But we're also going to have an elder and his wife at that corner and an elder and his wife and his wife at this corner, and they're also going to have a tray. And those two spots are special spots for a few of you who, when you hear the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, fruitless religion is the norm in your life. And today you'd say, that has got to stop. And just sitting, receiving communion the normal way, sure you could do it. But today, no, that's not going to work today for you because there needs to be something different. No more just passing the plate, receiving the elements, going on normal, normal, normal. You would say today, that's it, that's enough. I need to say to the Lord, I'm weary of fruitless, normal Christianity. And so therefore, while the plates are being passed, for those of you who feel led, I invite you to come and actually receive the elements from an elder and his wife. As you come, you must first tell them why you are there. You will confess, I'm here today because of blank. And then receive the elements and then just kneel right in this area and this area. And then you'll partake with all of us. And what these two spots will be is just a place for a few folks to say, Lord, before you, I'm making a gutsy move today. I'm going to get up from where I'm seated. I'm going to come and receive the elements and say, Lord, this cup, this bread symbolizes something too valuable for just normal, fruitless religion. That's got to stop. So, man, if you'd come, let's pray. Father, we, um, we pray now that you, by your Spirit, would... Help us to know what our response in this moment needs to be. Lord, without manipulating any response, without manufacturing any movement of your spirit, we simply want for you to be able to work in the hearts of people as you deem appropriate and fit. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would open our eyes and help us to see Jesus. We want to be ready, Lord. And my guess, Father, is there are some, and you know exactly who they are, that today are not ready. 
So, Lord, I pray that during this receiving of your Lord's table, that we would take careful inventory about the status of fruit and that we would repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we ask this in Jesus' name.